This is from the parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15. While he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, put his arms around him, and kissed him. Then the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and make merry. For this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. This is the word of the Lord. Be Let's be seated. I have a minister friend out in California who loves to tell a story about a woman in his church. She's a, an elderly lady. She's a, in her late 80s now. But she's one of those wonderful persons that lights up the room, just a ray of sunshine everywhere she went. Some of her, everywhere she goes, some of her friends in the Methodist Retirement Village uh, decided it would be great if she would move in because she would just bring such fun and joy to that place. So they began to persuade her and coax her, encourage her. And finally they prevailed, and she moved into the Methodist Retirement Center in Southern California. And the very first night she was there, they decided to have a party for her to welcome her there. They ushered her into the beautiful fellowship hall, took her up to the front, and seated her at the place of the guest of honor. As she sat down, she turned to her right, and noticed seated beside her was a very handsome-looking, a very prosperous-looking, very cultured-looking uh, man, and she was sort of smitten. And she began to stare at him, and she stared at him and stared at him so long that it became not only obvious uh, that she was staring, but downright embarrassing. And finally, she reached over and patted his hand, and she said, I am so sorry. I realize I'm, I'm staring at you, but I can't help myself because you look just like my third husband. <laughs> the man said, your third husband, how many times have you been married? And she said, twice. Ah. <laughs> uh, that's what you call coming up with just the right words uh, for the moment. And that's what I'm trying to do right now to tell you how delighted June and I are to be here with you. Uh, there is no word uh, that can really describe Boston Avenue United Methodist Church the way it looks other than spectacular. I don't know any church anywhere that is more spectacular in its appearance, uh, in its architecture in the, in, the, in the middle of a big city. But you know what is even better about Boston Avenue is the spirit of the people inside this magnificent building. Uh, we have felt your warmth that June and I have known about your greatness for many years, and it's an honor and a joy for us to be here with you. And after that introduction that Muzan gave, I can hardly wait to hear what I'm going to say this morning. <laughs> but you know, June and I have known Muzan and, and Gail for, as he mentioned, 35 years. He was four, and she was three at the time when we, when we met. But um, I have uh, wonderful uh, admiration and appreciation and respect for them. Uh, Muzan has been a hero in the faith for me over the years and a, and a dear friend. And what a thrill it is uh, to be here with you in the Barton Clinton Gordy Lectures, which, by the way, I just noticed this morning is pretty fascinating. You have Barton Clinton Gordy, these wonderful people that you're remembering through this lecture series. One was a preacher, one was a physician. And one was the teacher. And isn't that amazing? Because that's exactly what Jesus was and is. A preacher, uh, a teacher, and a physician. And isn't that great that we 
that 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 that's so that's a God thing. So you know, and I, I thought that was really really wonderful. So we're honored uh, to be here and delighted. I'm going to preach this morning on the subject, uh, the God whose shoes don't match. And let me get into this by by telling you uh, that I'm a collector of lists. People know that, and so they bring me these these lists. My, my, I have some of you know lists of all kinds. Some of them are funny. Some are interesting. But my favorite list of all is a collection of uh, answers, a list of answers given by English school children on their religion exams. Answers given by English school children on their religion exams. One student wrote this, Noah's wife was called Joan of the Ark. <laughs> Another one said, A myth is a female moth. Another one said, The fifth commandment is humor your father and mother. And then this one is most interesting. One student wrote this. Sometimes you can't hear in my church because the agnostics are so terrible. There's a sermon there somewhere. But my favorite one of all is this last one. And I have to tell you up front, I don't really understand exactly what this means. But Muzan Biggs is a great Bible scholar. And after church, he will explain this to you. But this student wrote this. And I'm going to quote the student precisely. Lot's wife... Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire by night. I have no idea what that means, but Muzan will explain that a little bit later. But the point of that list is this. Um, right answers are important, aren't they? And, you know, uh, so are right questions. So what I want to do this morning is raise what I think is a right question. And the question is this. Do you know... Up close and personal, the God whose shoes don't match. Now, I'm going to get into that, but let me first tell you about tonight. I know the Oscars are on tonight, and I'll be brief tonight, so come. I'm going to, as Muzan mentioned, if I, were, if I were told that I could only preach a couple of sermons, this one tonight would be one of them. So we hope you'll come, and I'll try to get you home for most of the, uh, of the Oscars. Let's bow together for just a moment of uh, prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Some years ago, a seasoned veteran United Methodist missionary who had worked was working in China. He'd been there some years. He befriended a young Chinese artist. They became good buddies. And through their friendship, the young Chinese artist was converted. He became a Christian. He accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. And then the young artist said to his older missionary friend, I want to learn everything I can about the Christian faith, and I want you to teach me, but I best internalize truth by painting it. Tell me how to paint the Christian faith. Now, that's something to think about. And what would you have said? Well, the missionary did a brilliant thing. He pulled out his Bible. He turned to Luke 15, and he said, Look, here is the parable of the prodigal son. If you paint this, you will have the essence of the Christian faith. The young artist undertook the project of painting the parable of the prodigal son. Now, his first attempt showed the prodigal son way off far down the road, trudging home in defeat. He is dirty. He is, he is disheveled. He's stooped. He's bowed. He is the picture of remorse and shame and penitence, a pretty good depiction of the prodigal. But strangely, strangely, the young artist depicted the father in a most unusual way. He had him looking like Ewell Brenner in The King and I with his arms folded across his chest like that, looking sternly down the road at the prodigal with this I told you so harsh expression on his face. 
Now, when the artist showed the missionary the painting, the missionary thought, goodness, it's beautiful, but he's missed the point. He missed the whole main message of the story. So he measured his words carefully, spoke tenderly, and he said, technically, the, the painting is, is gorgeous. The, the colors, the t- it's just wonderful. But he said, I have to tell you, in all honesty, you, you've missed the point of the story. How so, said the artist. Well, the missionary said the, the father would not be standing at the, at the front gate with his arms folded, looking sternly down the road. He's been worried sick about his boy. Rumors had even come back to the farm that the, the son might have been killed, that he might be dead. He, a thousand times and more, he's looked down the road hoping for this moment, dreaming of this moment, longing for this moment, wanting this moment, praying for this moment, and now here it is. He wouldn't be standing and waiting. He'd be running to, to meet his son and love him back into the family circle and welcome him home. The young artist said, well, many fathers would not uh, do that. That may be true, said the older missionary, but he said, you know, when Jesus told this story, he told the story to show us what God is like. He told the story to show us God's unconditional love, that God is always anxious to love, quick to forgive, and eager to reconcile. I see, replied the young artist. Let me try it again. A few days later, he called the missionary back. He'd finished his second attempt. The missionary went over to see it, and the, first, the second painting looked, with regard to the prodigal, exactly the same. The prodigal was the same, far off down the road, the picture of shame and remorse and penitence, dirty, disheveled, trudging home. But the father, this time, he depicts entirely differently. Instead of looking like Yul Brynner and the king and I, this time the father is running down the road to meet the prodigal, his arms outstretched to receive him, his robes flapping in the wind, an incredible expression on his face of relief and joy and, and gratitude. And interestingly, interestingly, his shoes don't match. They're two different colors. One is red and one is blue. And the missionary is intrigued by this. And he said to the young artist, this is a magnificent painting. You have, you have captured the crux of the, of the parable and the, and the essence of the Christian faith. But I have to ask you something. The father's shoes don't match. One is red, one is blue. Why is that? And the young artist said, because of just what you said. The father has been so worried about his son. He is so anxious when he sees him and so relieved that he can't wait to get to him. So he just grabs the two nearest shoes and puts them on and takes off running. It doesn't matter that they don't match. All that matters is to get to that boy and love him and forgive him and bring him back into the family circle. All that matters is that boy was lost and now he is found. All that matters was... He was afraid he might be dead. And here he is home, alive and well and safe and and sound. Isn't that a great story that really captures what the prodigal son parable is all about? In that parable, our, our, our Father God represents here, he is represented here as one who is always anxious to love, quick to forgive, and eager to reconcile. That's what the first part of the parable is all about. Now, when I was a younger Christian, I used to wish that the story would end right here with a big party. I like happy endings. I thought, oh, my goodness, I wish that last part had just kind of gotten lost. Because that elder brother part sort of bothered me. 
But over the years, as I've grown in the faith, I understand now precisely why Jesus put it in, and I'm so glad He did. And here's the reason. The first part of the parable shows us what God is like. Anxious to love, quick to forgive, eager to reconcile. The second part of the parable, the elder brother part, shows us what God wants us to be like, and it shows us, tragically, that we, like the elder brother, don't really want to do that. In the elder brother, there's no forgiveness, no compassion, no understanding, no unmatched shoes here. And bitterly, in resentment, he turns away and he misses the party. Now, the point is clear. The first part of the parable shows us that God is always anxious to love, quick to forgive, and eager to reconcile. And when we mimic that spirit, when we take on that spirit of, of God's gracious, unconditional love, then life is a celebration. And when we don't, when we don't, we become likely prospects for a life of bitterness and misery and loneliness. Just walking around out there in the darkness by ourselves, everybody else in there having a party. Now, let me bring this close to home with three quick thoughts. You may think of some other ideas, but let me get you to try these three on precise this morning. Are you ready? Here's number one. First of all, in the church, we can live in that gracious spirit of the unmatched shoes, and I pray that we will. I want us to be a church whose shoes don't match because I want us to be a church always anxious to love, quick to forgive, and eager to reconcile. Dr. Fred Craddock is one of the great preachers in America today. You've had him here uh, for your lecture series, and he's fa fantastic. He tells in one of his sermons a story about his daddy. Now, his mom, uh, Fred Craddock's mother, loved the church. Every time the church doors opened, she, she was there. But his dad had had a bad experience with the church when he was a younger uh, person, and he had a bitterness about it, and he wouldn't go to church. And he would get mad on Sunday because his wife and Fred would go, and, and Sunday lunch would be, be late because they'd been down there with all those hypocrites at the church. And the pastor would come out to try to talk to Mr. Craddock to get him to come on back to the church. But every time the conversation went pretty much the same, Mr. Craddock was pretty tough on the preacher. He would say, you don't care about me. None of those folks down at the church care about me. All you want is another name for your role and another pledge for your budget. That's all you want. pastor would go away defeated. When, when Miss Craddock would hear her, day, her husband talking to the minister like that, the pastor that she loved, she'd go in the kitchen and put her head down on the kitchen table and cry. He was tough on them. Sometimes they'd have a revival, and the pastor would say to the visiting preacher, Here's the toughest, Mr. Craddock. Go see what you can do with him. And the, revi the, the revival preacher would go out and try to talk to him. He'd say the same thing. You don't care anything about me. All you want is another name for your role, another pledge for your budget. But one time, he didn't say it. One time, he didn't say it. He was in Veterans Hospital in West Tennessee. Fred Craddock was grown now, and he rushed across the country to get to his dad before his dad died. His father was terminally ill. They had operated on his father, and they had taken out part of his throat, and they put a tube down his throat where he could breathe, but he couldn't speak. When Fred Craddock went into that hospital room, he said he couldn't believe his eyes. His dad was down to 74 pounds. He went over to his dad, and they, they hugged, and they visited just a minute, and then Fred Craddock looked around that hospital room, and you wouldn't, wouldn't believe it. Everywhere he looked, it looked like a gift shop. 
there were gifts of love all over that hospital room. And listen to this. Every single one of them from somebody at that church that he fussed about and cussed at all those years. Fred Craddock went around and he started picking up the different things. There was a box of candy from the women's circle. Uh, there were flowers from a Bible study group at the church. There was a great big old card that all the young people at Youth Fellowship had signed. There was a robe that the Methodist men had sent, and so forth and so on. And he was reading these out loud. And he heard his dad scrambling around behind him. And he looked back, and his dad was reaching over, grabbing the Kleenex box. He couldn't talk, and he got a ballpoint pen, and he wrote something on the side of the box. And did like that to give it to Fred. And Fred took it, and, and he knew his dad wanted to read it out loud. It was a line from, uh, from Hamlet. In this harsh world, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. Fred Craddock read that out loud. Draw your breath in pain to tell my story. And he said, Daddy, what is your story? And Mr. Craddock grabbed the Kleenex box, turned it around, and wrote on the other side three words. I was wrong. I was wrong about the church. Now think about that. Rebuffed time and again, rebuffed over the years, that church did the right thing. They kept on loving Mr. Craddock. You know why? Because they wore shoes that don't match. They were anxious to love, quick to forgive, and eager to reconcile. I want us to be a church like that, don't you? That's number one. In the church, I want us to live in the, in the spirit, the gracious spirit of the unmatched shoes. Here's the second thought. In our families, I hope we can live in the spirit of the gracious, unmatched shoes, always anxious to love, quick to forgive, and eager to reconcile. Now, it's all confidential, and we wouldn't do that, but Muzan and I could spend all afternoon telling you stories about how terribly torn up families can get. They come and talk to us about it. It's unbelievable how family members get all crossways with one another. Some years ago, in another state far, far away, uh, I had a funeral for a young man named Jerry. He had a heart attack at his office desk uh, on, on one day and, just, and, and died at 35 years of age. One week to the day before Jerry died, his, his daughter, he had a beautiful wife he loved dearly. He had a daughter who was the apple of his eye. And one week before he, he died, his daughter had her eighth birthday. They had a big party for her, and when everybody went home, Jerry and his wife took the little girl in the den, and Jerry said, I have a special gift for you. I've been saving it for years, and I want to give it to you today. He said, it's a coin collection my parents gave to me when I was eight years old. It's not worth a lot, about $50, $60, but I've kept it over all these years. I got it on my eighth birthday, and now I want to give it to you on your eighth birthday. The little girl was absolutely delighted. She loved the thought of that, and she loved that coin collection. One week later... Jerry had his heart attack and died. I had the funeral. Three days after the funeral, Jerry's wife and his daughter, the late year old girl, went over to visit Jerry's mother. And while they were all in horrible grief, just shock, you know. And then the little girl climbed up in grandmother's lap. And she said, Grandmother, did I tell you what Daddy gave me for my birthday? No. He gave me a coin collection. Suddenly, grandmother turned stern. She pushed the little girl out of her lap. She said, I want that coin collection. I gave that to Jerry when he was eight years old. That should come to me, not to you. When the, when, when the wife and the little girl tried to explain how important this was to Jerry, the grandmother said, get out of my house. 
And if you don't bring that coin collection back immediately, I'll never, ever speak to either one of you again as long as I live. Well, Jerry's wife and daughter left crying. The next day, Jerry's mother shows up in my office and tells me this story. And then she said this to me, Jim, if you were in my place, what would you do? But I knew this was very emotional to her, and so I measured my words carefully. And I said, you know, I'm not good at giving advice, but you have asked me what I would do if I were in your place, and so I think you want me to tell you, so I will. I paused a moment, and I said, you know what? You could lose your granddaughter over this, and it's just not worth it. So if I were you, I'd get up out of that chair. I'd walk as fast as my legs could carry me to my car. I would drive directly to their house. I would ring the front doorbell. And when they opened the door, I would say, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. We've all been in terrible grief. I haven't been myself. Of course I want my granddaughter to have the coin collection. Of course that's what Jerry wanted. That's what I want. And I hope and pray that you can find it in your heart to forgive me. I paused to let that sink in. And then I said, now you asked me what I would do. That is exactly what I would do. You know what she said? She turned harsh and she said these precise words. She said, all hell will freeze over before I'll ever do that. Isn't that pitiful? Isn't that sad? Isn't that tragic? That was 20 years ago. And that little girl grew up, had a wonderful time in high school, won a big college scholarship, did great in college. She's happily married. She's 28. She's expecting her first baby. And grandmother knows nothing about any of that because of a coin collection worth about 50 or $60. That's just heartbreaking to me. In our families, in our churches, we need to live in the spirit of the unmatched shoes, in the gracious spirit of Jesus, always anxious to love, quick to forgive, and eager to reconcile. Here's the third and final point. Third and finally, in our personal relationships, we can live in this, by the grace of God, we can live in this gracious spirit of the unmatched shoes. Some years ago, a minister friend of mine who came out of Arkansas uh, told me a story that just touched my heart, and, and I think that, I hope it will, yours. He was, he's telling the story about a young man named Bertram. Bertram was about 30 years of age. He lived in a small village in, in southwest Arkansas. And one Saturday morning, he went into the service station to get some uh, gasoline for his pickup truck. And while Bertram was pumping the gas, old man Jones comes up behind him. Now, Mr. Jones was a good man, but every now and then, he was, he was 80 years old, every now and then he would drink alcohol. And he was one of those guys that when he got a little alcohol in him, he, he got belligerent and wanted to pick a fight. And so 80-year-old Mr. Jones decides on this Saturday morning, he'd been drinking all night, to pick a fight with Bertram, who's just innocently pumping gas. So he comes up behind him, and he begins to fuss at him and cuss at him and hit him with his fist in the back. Bertram said later, why didn't I just get in the pickup truck and drive off? I wish I had. But he just kept trying to ignore him. And finally, in frustration, he just hit him really hard. Bertram got hit in the back really hard, and in frustration, he did this. And his arm, forearm, caught Mr. Jones right here in the chest, and he stumbled back. And in his drunken stupor, as he tried to stumble off, he tripped over a curb. He fell, and his head hit the corner of a concrete bench, and he was dead when he hit the ground. Now, can you imagine what that would do to
to a little town in southwest Arkansas. Well, I mean, it just split the, the, the town into two camps. Some people should have said, well, it was Bertram's fault. He, he knows how old man Jones is when he's drinking. He should have just gotten out of there. But other people said, oh, no, it's Mr. Jones' fault. He gets so belligerent. It wasn't, uh, Bertram was just minding his own business. It was just horrible. The town was totally polarized. That afternoon, my minister friend got a call from Bertram. And he said to him, he said, Pete, I, I, I gotta, I've got to go over to the Jones farm. I just have to go over there and tell Mr. Jones' wife that I, I didn't mean to hurt him. I, I, it, was an, it, was, it was not intentional. I, I just was trying to get him off of my back. And he said, I, I'd like for you to go with me. And he said, you may not want to be seen in public with me. And if you don't, it's okay, I understand. But I'd sure like it if you could go there with me. When they arrived, they got out of Bertram's pickup truck. And my minister friend said it was like Moses going through the Red Sea. Uh, the relatives and neighbors had all gathered. They were in the yard. They were on the porch. They were in the house. And as they walked up toward the house, everybody just parted like that. And they walked right up. Nobody spoke to them. They just looked at them curiously. They went up on the porch. Bertram knocked on the door. One of the family members came to the door. What are you doing here, Bertram? Well, I, I want to speak to Miss Jones. Well, she may not want to talk to you. I know, I know. But could you just please tell her I'm here? They went back to the back. Bertram and the minister stepped into the living room. And they told Miss Jones that Bertram was in the living room. You know what she did? She jumped up out of that rocking chair as fast as she could, could get out of it. She went as fast as her 80-year-old legs would carry her into the living room. She went over and she reached out and she took both of Bertram's hands in hers like this. And he started to apologize. And she said, Bertram, you don't have to say a word. I have known you all your life. I was with your mother the night you were born. In fact, she said, when the doctor delivered you, he turned and handed you to me. I was the first person in the world to hold you and rock you and walk you and sing to you. Bertram, I've known you all your life, and I know you're a good person, and I know you didn't mean any harm. And she said, I know, as you must know, Bertram, that it was an accident. And then she pulled Bertram toward her and hugged him tightly with both arms. And with that hug, she healed the whole town. Now, if you and I could get in a time machine and go back and witness that scene, standing off to the side, looking at, at, at Miss Jones hugging Bertram, and if we looked down at her feet, you know what I think we'd see? A red house shoe and a blue house shoe. Because she was anxious to love, quick to forgive, and eager to reconcile. Now, where did she learn that? Where did she learn to live like that? You know, you know, don't you? The same place we learn it from Jesus. Let's bow together for just a moment. Oh God, we ask that you would help us to understand better the gracious spirit of the unmatched shoes. Even more, we ask that you would live, help us to live, help us to live in the spirit of the shoes that don't match. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.